Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai 7 o'clock Central African time. A very good morning to you and welcome to the third and final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are online on www.channelafrica.co.za and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Teddy Sibia. Driving the show with me this morning is Anne Musa and Tracy Bumgard. For your top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Once again, protests have broken out in U.S. cities after the shooting of black men by police officers. Thousands of South African learners turned back home on the first day of school reopening. And in economics, the ripple effect of coronavirus still evident in the mining areas of South Africa's northwest province. But first, here are the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussa. Talks in Mali aimed at resolving the political situation following last week's coup have ended without an agreement. West African leaders have said that the deposed President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita should be reinstated. However, envoys from regional body ECOWAS failed to convince Mali's military leaders that this was the way forward. Keita faced huge street protests before his overthrow and many in Mali have welcomed his removal. Colonel Ishmael Wegu says mediators would report to regional heads of state ahead of a summit now on Mali this week. The talks began with a brief session on Saturday and then continued through both Sunday and Monday. A Somali court has sentenced four senior government officials to jail for having a hand in the theft of public funds meant for the COVID-19 emergency response. The Benada Regional Court found the four guilty in a case that has drawn public scrutiny about the use of the funds in the country. Sarah Kimani reports. Though court documents did not indicate how much was stolen, the health ministry in April said it was investigating the misuse of between 42,000 and 45,000 U.S. dollars. The judgment comes days after the World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom said that corruption in the purchase of COVID-19 PPEs is tantamount to murder. Somalia is the third African country to raise concerns over the theft of COVID-19 funds. The others include Kenya and South Africa. In Kenya, protesters took to the streets of Nakuru and Kisumu towns in the west of the country, demanding the arrest of those implicated in the theft of close to 430 million U.S. dollars. South Africa's Health Minister Dr. Zelimkize says 1,677 new coronavirus cases have been recorded in the last 24 hours, bringing the total number of cases in South Africa to 611,450. The death toll now stands at 13,159. Mkize was speaking during the Gauteng General Practitioner Collaboration Panel discussion on the coronavirus pandemic. Mkize has attributed the high recovery rate of 83% in the country to the work of healthcare workers. He says the well-being and safety of healthcare professionals will be prioritized. All the people who have recovered 
We're talking about 83%. They actually have recovered in the hands of the health workers. Over 27,000 of our colleagues who have become infected with the virus and tragically, which has robbed us uh, of uh, uh, 240 of some of the talented healthcare workers. We have uh, taken uh, a slogan that says, no PPE, no work, because we want to encourage all those who are in the leadership to take the issue of the protection of health workers very seriously. Police and demonstrators have clashed for a second night in Wisconsin after police officers shot a black man on Sunday. Jacob Blake is reportedly in a stable condition after officers shot him multiple times as he tries to get into a car in the city of Kenosha. Demonstrators flocked to the streets as they did following the police killing of George Floyd in the neighboring state of Minnesota. Floyd's death in May highlighted police brutality and racism in the U.S. in sparked protests across the globe. It's unclear who called police prior to Jacob Blake's death and what happened, or shooting rather, and what happened before the video recording began. Wisconsin's Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes condemned Blake's shooting. You think after the past few months of people who are stepping up to demand justice that police departments, chiefs of police, Even police unions will rush to implement some sort of reform, but that hasn't happened. Former United States Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley says President Donald Trump stood up for America and against their enemies, things his predecessor, Barack Obama and Democratic nominee Joe Biden refused to do. Haley was speaking at the Republican National Convention where she backed President Trump for another four years. This president has a record of strength and success. The former vice president has a record of weakness and failure. Joe Biden is good for Iran and ISIS, great for communist China, and he's a godsend to everyone who wants America to apologize, abstain, and abandon our values. Donald Trump takes a different approach. He's tough on China, and he took on ISIS and won. And he tells the world what it needs to hear. At home, the president is the clear choice on jobs and the economy. He's moved America forward while Joe Biden has held America back. In sports news, defending APSA Premiership champions Mamelodi Sundowns have now closed the gap between them and current log leaders Kaiser Chiefs to only three points. Sundowns needed a very late goal from second half substitute Temba Zwane to beat Golden Arrows 1-0 to complete, collect maximum points. This was Sundowns' first win in five matches since the resumption of the season earlier this month. Sundowns will now face Chiefs in a potential league decider at Orlando Stadium on Thursday. If Sundowns manage to beat Amakosi this week, the two teams will be level on 53 points apiece with just a few games remaining before the end of the season. Channel Africa would like to distance itself from fake social media accounts using the name Channel African News. The Facebook, WhatsApp and fake website have been impersonating our genuine Channel Africa digital platforms. Channel Africa is not associated with these fake accounts. Channel Africa's Facebook account is Channel Africa Numerical One. It is Channel Africa, the African Perspective. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. 
Once again, protests have broken out in U.S. cities after the shooting of black men by police officers. Over the weekend, officers killed Triford Perlin in Lafayette, Louisiana, and seriously injured Jacob Blake in Kenosha, uh, Wincosen. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. Today, there are no protesters here on Black Lives Matter Plaza in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. But over the weekend, two other American cities saw similar protests to those that Washington witnessed over the summer. The reason two more police shootings of black men in this country. The first was in the city of Lafayette in Louisiana. There, police were called to reports of a person with a knife in a convenience store. When they arrived, they used a taser on Trayford Pellerin, but they said that was ineffective and they went on to shoot him. He was pronounced dead in the hospital. That led to protests on Saturday night, which began peacefully, according to local officials, but then turned violent and police used smoke canisters on the crowd to disperse them. Then on Sunday night, more protests, this time in the city of Kenosha in the state of Wisconsin. This is after police were called to a domestic incident uh, and when they got there, they ended up shooting Jacob Blake at least seven times in the back. That's according to a video of the incident and local people there told local media that he was there trying to break up a fight. He is in a serious condition in hospital and the officers involved have been placed on administrative leave. Well, the Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has issued a statement condemning this shooting and saying that we must dismantle systemic racism. His opponent, President Donald Trump, has taken a slightly different approach to things. He has been uh, trying to portray himself as the candidate in this race who will be tough on crime. And that strong message of law and order and support of the police will continue, no doubt, through his speeches this week at the Republican National Convention. Kate Fisher, Washington. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has been lauded for acting swiftly against Finance Minister Tito Mboweni following his social media comments regarding the removal of Zambia's Central Bank Governor by President Edgar Lungu. In one of his tweets, Mboweni is promising to mobilize if not given reasons why Denny Kalalia has been fired by President Lungu. Political analyst Professor Somatota Figeni says Ramaphosa needed to act fast on the matter. Reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa acting fast to avoid a potential diplomatic fallout that could have been caused by his finance minister, Tito Mboweni. He reprimanded Mboweni distancing the country from his views on the latest developments in Zambia. In his tweets, Mboweni says Zambian President Edgar Lungu must give reasons why he fired that country's central bank governor, Deni Yalia. Acting presidential spokesperson Tyrone Siale says Ramaphosa reassured Zambian people and its government that Mboweni's remarks do not reflect the views of South Africa and its people. He says proper action is being considered to address the situation. President Ramaphosa wishes to assure the government and people of Zambia that the unfortunate remarks do not reflect the views of the South African government and its people. The issue is being addressed to ensure that such an incident does not occur again. 
South Africa and Zambia enjoyed strong historical relations dating back to the days of the struggle against apartheid. Mm. South Africa remains committed to maintaining the deep and solid bonds of friendship between the peoples of Zambia and South Africa. A move that has been given a thumbs up. Political analyst Professor Somato Dafigeni has also warned that Finance Minister Tito Mboweni's behavior on social media could have detrimental effects not only for him but for the country as well. He says President Cyril Ramaphosa was forced to take action against Mboweni because this will reflect badly on South Africa, the current chair of the African Union. This didn't help him in any way in his standing. And it also puts the president in an awkward position because he had no choice but to intervene and reprimand him in line with the protocols, more so because the president also happened to be the chairperson of the AU where this could have generated a diplomatic firestorm. But Professor Yanni Rousseau from the Wits University's Economics Department says Mboweni's action seeks to show that he doesn't want to compromise on the independence of central banks. Mr Mboweni, who incidentally served as the eighth governor of the South African Reserve Bank, has a strong belief in central bank autonomy and independence and makes the argument that the president of the country should not be in a position to fire the central bank governor without due process. Due process or protect the position of the governor in instances where tough decisions should be taken. Moweni, however, continues to tweet, saying he won't back down on what he believes is right, which is the independence of all central banks across the African continent. I am Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided that all public schools should take a break for the next four weeks. Now, this has also been the experience in a number of other countries where schools have opened and have also had to close due to the circumstances that each country has had to confront. This means that schools will be closed from the 27th July and we'll reopen on the 24th of August. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly, as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition. Fifteen minutes after seven Central African time. If you just tuned in, good morning to you and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine with myself, Teddy Sibia. Should you wish to engage with us, please do follow us across our social media platforms. On Facebook, you'll find us at Channel Africa. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. Or you can also send us a WhatsApp message or voice note to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. The 2020 edition of the Manufacturing in Daba, a manufacturing event in sub-Saharan Africa, will be hosted as a virtual conference on the 9th and 10th December 2020. This is as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and to ensure the safety of the participating manufacturing companies. 
for more on this event, I spoke to Liz Hart, Managing Director for Manufacturing Endeavor. I think currently, if you look at the impact of, of COVID-19 on the manufacturing sector, it's been pretty devastating with manufacturing figures way down, with companies having been forced to shut down during the lockdown period in South Africa. So the need is huge for manufacturers to engage, to find out from their peers what they can do, what solutions there are, how they can grow their manufacturing base, and then also looking at issues of localization. So hosting the conference virtually will be a new event for us because we normally do physical events where we get people together. But given the safety of participants, our aim is really to keep people safe. But there's still the massive demand for information sharing and knowledge. So we've opted to host the event uh, virtually for 2020. Yes. Will this be your first uh, manufacturing event to host virtually? And uh, what are you looking uh, forward to in uh, this year's uh, different manufacturing endeavor? We have hosted a couple of manufacturing endeavor webinars, which were very successfully hosted. Mm. So it'll be the first time that we host such a big conference um, and event virtually. The very positive outcome for hosting it virtually is that because attendance is at no cost, we anticipate enormous numbers of people registering. To give you an idea, we launched the event virtually on Tuesday and we've already got over 300 delegates that have registered. So the very nice aspect of the virtual platform is that you can reach a far bigger audience um, over the two two days of the event. So we're very excited by that. Um, And especially a lot of smaller companies that are really wanting to put their toes in the water and learn about manufacturing and what is available. Liz, what are some of uh, the key issues that will be discussed at uh, this year's event? This year's event is going to be looking at what are some of the impacts and repercussions of COVID-19 on the manufacturing sector and what is government doing well, what will government be doing to look at trying to assist the manufacturing fraternity in supporting them and growing their manufacturing businesses? One of the big discussion points has been what government incentives um, are available for manufacturers, and we'll be discussing that at length at the event. And I think manufacturers that are in distress or feeling a lot of pressure as a result of COVID and being in lockdown are particularly interested to know what support is available. Secondly, the Continental Free Trade Agreement that has been signed really supports the development of manufacturers and growing our own local manufacturing where Africans can do it for themselves. So instead of us importing a whole lot of products from the East, particularly China, we now have the opportunity to sell to one another. So, for example, we could be manufacturing shoes in South Africa that we're selling to companies to buy in Zambia, Zimbabwe, in the region, or into East Africa. So how can we as Africans do it for ourselves? So those will be some of the very key issues that will be discussed at the event, and I think really important for manufacturers to know about. They want to know how can they sell across the continent, how can they procure products, for their manufacturing from across the continent. And then at the same time, how will government be able to support them and help them grow their manufacturing businesses? Now, why were all the provincial uh, manufacturing in Daba events and the East Africa edition postponed uh, to the second half of 2021? 
The real reason is purely because events currently in South Africa are banned and interprovincial travel has just opened up. So we were unsure as to when government would open up interprovincial travel. Um, and at the back of our minds, we always thought, well, we would potentially be hosting the main manufacturing in Dada as a virtual event. We, we always thought that. So with that in mind, the, even though the provincial manufacturing in Dada have been postponed to the latter half of 2021, all the companies that participated at those events are now able to join the national manufacturing in Darbo by joining the virtual events. And as I mentioned, there's no cost to attend. So it's even better for them. So now they can hear a, a national agenda, they can hear the key experts speaking, and they can find out even more than they would have been able to, where the provincial events really spoke to a provincial agenda. Now they've got opportunity to be exposed to a much bigger and broader agenda, which is the national government agenda. So um, I think from that side, they're actually in the winning seats because they're going to get a lot more um, and obviously at no cost other than the two days that they spend with us listening into the different sessions. Yes. Now, Liz, before I let you go there, uh, for those who'd like to participate at the Manufacturing in Daba virtual conference, how do they go about it? They can go to our website, manufacturingindaba.co.za, and they can register for the conference on the website. As I mentioned, no cost. We encourage companies to participate. Yes. This is the opportunity to really... Um, get something back from COVID, which I think we've all struggled with, where they can attend an incredible event with top speakers and listen to the key issues for absolutely nothing. So it's really an opportunity for us as manufacturing in Dalva to give back to our manufacturing community and ultimately to support the growth of manufacturing. Uh, we are to try and help manufacturers grow their businesses and we want to share the knowledge and this event will be doing exactly that. And that was Liz Hart, Managing Director for Manufacturing in Daba, the talking to myself. Thousands of learners in South Africa were turned back home on the first day of school reopening. This as schools introduce a rotation system which will see learners only going to school two or three times a week. All grades except grades 8 and 5 were expected back at school yesterday, but only grades 9, 10 and 12 were accepted. The rest of the learners were turned back as their classes will only start today. In most cases, this was only communicated to the children when they arrived at school. Angela Polowana reports. Thousands of learners made their way to school on Monday following the Department of Basic Education's announcement that all grades except grade 8 and 5 would be going back to school. The learners, decked in full school uniforms, say they were disappointed at the news that they would not immediately be starting with classes. These grade 11 learners from Deep Slut were making their way to the mall after they were turned back from school. There was an update to school that we should come back on only Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. So today per week, nothing. We just talked with the principal only. The learners say although they are worried about contracting the coronavirus, they are happy that schools are open and feel confident that they'll finish their syllabus on time. Excited. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the COVID-19 affects our studies. I'm afraid. Too much. A lot. <laughs> but there's no choice. We have to go back to school because... 
the syllabus doesn't stop, it continues. So no choice, only to protect ourselves on, on the COVID, to wear masks and do the sanitizing thing. So we can continue with school. Learner organization COSAS has made a U-turn on school reopening, saying that they now support learners going back to school because the peak of the virus is behind us. However, COSAS president Douglas Ngubeni says they are against the rotation system. Since it's summer, uh, there's a need that we add uh, more infrastructure to, so to accommodate even more learners and they adhere to social distancing and uh, the precautionary measures in order to uh, combat the virus. But uh, as an organization, we welcome the phasing in of other grades and uh, we reject the rotation system. Teacher Union Nabchosa supports the rotation system but says it has also exposed the crisis of teacher shortages, especially now with some teachers staying home because of their vulnerable health situation. The union's Basel Manual says some provinces have not moved fast enough to address the shortages. The rotation system is the only system that we could use if we wanted to social distance. You can't social distance with classes of 40 and more. So it is half the number that must be at school on any given day. But what it means is that you're using the full teacher complement for half the teachers and on, on different days rotating. That means that if they are teachers short at the school, it becomes a crisis. And this is where we are at now. We are at a crisis because teachers haven't been replaced. Teacher Union Satu says it's not a surprise that learners were turned back because many schools had indicated that they didn't have resources. The union also says some schools indicated that they did not have the full complement of PPE. The Basic Education Department has admitted that some provinces have not completed filling in vacant teacher posts. However, spokesperson Elijah Mthanga has cautioned against calling the situation a crisis. The day was very important because it's the day when all schools were going to be opened and receive learners in large numbers so that the system can be tested to see what is actually required. So we can't be talking about a crisis as yet. Let's allow the system to, to take in the learners, to, to settle down, and then we will assess the situation again. We should refrain from using words like crisis where there's no crisis. It's a situation which is abnormal. No one planned for this. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has warned that some 120 million direct jobs could be lost in the tourism sector due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This was revealed in his latest policy brief related to the impact the pandemic is having on various sectors. The brief argues that the crisis has provided an opportunity to rethink how tourism interacts with societies, other economic sectors and our natural resources and ecosystems and calls for urgency in mitigating the impacts on livelihoods, especially for women, youth and informal workers. The UN chief provided this video statement earlier. Tourism is one of the world's most important economic sectors. It employs one in every 10 people on earth and provides livelihoods to hundreds of millions more. It boosts economies and enables countries to thrive. It allows people to experience some of the world's cultural and natural riches and brings people closer to each other, highlighting our common humanity. Indeed, one might say that tourism is itself one of the wonders of the world. That is why it has been so painful to see how tourism has been devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. 
In the first five months of this year, international tourist arrivals decreased by more than half and some 320 billion US dollars in exports from tourism were lost. Overall, some 120 million direct jobs in tourism are at risk. Many are in the informal economy or in micro, small and medium-sized enterprises which employ a high proportion of women and young people. The crisis is a major shock for developed economies, but for developing countries it is an emergency, particularly for many small island developing states and African countries. For women, rural communities, indigenous peoples and many other historically marginalized populations, tourism has been a vehicle for integration, empowerment and generating income. Tourism is also a key pillar for the conservation of natural and cultural heritage. The fall in revenues has led to increased poaching and habitat destruction in and around protected areas and the closure of many world heritage sites has deprived communities of vital livelihoods. It is imperative that we rebuild the tourism sector, but it must be in a way that is safe, equitable and climate friendly. Transport-related greenhouse gas emissions could rebound sharply if recovery is not aligned with climate goals. Supporting the millions of livelihoods that depend on tourism means building a sustainable and responsible travel experience that is safe for host communities, workers and travelers. To aid recovery, I have identified five priority areas. First, mitigate the socio-economic impacts of the crisis. Second, build resilience across the entire tourism value chain. Third, maximize the use of technology in the tourism sector. Fourth, promote sustainability and green growth. And fifth, foster partnerships to enable tourism to further support the sustainable development goals. Let us ensure that tourism regains its position as a provider of decent jobs, stable incomes, and the protection of our cultural and natural heritage. Thank you. And that is United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. It's now time for us to cross over to Anne Musa with the news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, talks in Mali aimed at resolving the political situation following last week's coup have ended without an agreement. A Somali court has sentenced for senior government officials to jail for having a hand in the theft of public funds meant for the COVID-19 emergency response. And police and demonstrators have clashed for a second night in Wisconsin after police officers shot a black man on Sunday. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thirty-one minutes after seven Central African time. If you just uh, tuned in, uh, good morning to you and welcome to uh, Africa Rise and Shine. And th- my name is uh, Teddy Sibia. We are broadcasting live from Johannesburg in uh, South Africa. The COVID-19 pandemic that we are currently faced with has. Uh, 
resulted in a lot of people losing hope and feeling discouraged. In light of this, a book of enlightening and hopeful short stories based on interviews with formidable South Africans has been launched. The book was conceptualized and written during lockdown by a diverse group of contributors who share personal stories of how they helped communities and pivoted their businesses despite difficult circumstances. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by one of the authors, Don Nathan John Jones, rather, who is an entrepreneur. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you so much. And um, thanks very, very much for having me on your show. Thank you so much. Now, let's start uh, with this. Uh, how did you how did this book rather come about? And uh, just briefly talk to us uh, through the process of uh, writing it. Sure, Teddy. So what what happened is we all know what happened um, middle of March um, when, when we went into hard lockdown and we run a business, myself and my two partners, we run a social enterprise business for entrepreneurs, for startups, for existing small businesses to help them scale up. And, you know, all of our plans and all of the things that we had um, in store for this year had been cancelled. And as everybody, we all went into a bit of a decline. We were living in fear. We were living, um, we, were, we were very anxious. And um, all of this was happen- happening around us. And, you know, I mean, obviously for, for all of us, we all got on with, with, you know, staying at our homes and, you know, connecting with our families. But after the first 21 days, my partners and myself, um, and we said, you know, we should be doing more. And having read through social media and just through networks, we found that even under hard lockdown, there were incredible people and very ordinary people doing extraordinary things um, in lockdown. And we felt that we needed to capture these moments. We needed to write these memories um, to leave, leave a legacy for our, you know, the next generation. Um, because we always we always say, where were you when 9-11 happened? Or where were you when um, Nelson Mandela died? And we felt this was, was, was you know, something that was um, very different to somebody dying. This was a way of life and um, how we have, had to change and pivot and transform over this, this time. We, we just felt that we needed to, to capture the moment. And when we started... Speaking to people, we felt that there was a common thread, and that common thread was hope, that these people had hope, so much hope, so much determination, so much courage. So that's how the story came about. Um, And as I said, through our networks, um, through the people we knew, um, we we reached out to many people. I mentor and coach a lot of people. I reached out to to many people that I know, and so did my partners. And... um, in fact, we, we said we would have about 20 stories and, and we just kept hearing more and more incredible things that people were doing. So we felt that we needed to interview them. So all these interviews um, happened via Zoom from our homes. And um, it was incredible. Not one person actually turned us down. Um, and, you know, normally you would want to interview somebody and they would say they're overseas at a board meeting or they on an urgent meeting. No one could give us any excuses. But, but really, it was an incredible moment to, to connect with these people and just share the, the great things that people were doing. 
Yes. Now, as an entrepreneur yourself, uh, how has this uh, difficult period been for you, especially in the beginning when uh, we woke up to a change in life as we know it would be? So as an entrepreneur, I mean, our year for, for 2020, we call it 2020. I mean, we had just so many plans. We had um, we had we had just um, signed our biggest contract to do a yes. large-scale intervention with a big corporate customer. And, you know, we were planning on, on, on um, training hundreds of, of, of entrepreneurs, both youth and, um, and small businesses. So, you know, what happened to, to, to me is obviously in the first 21 days, we were all um, desperately trying just to keep our um, mental health and to keep our mindset positive. But, you know, I realized that there was so much more that I could do. So I turned into, you know, my business into into online. So I was doing online mentoring. Um, I, I was very fortunate that I was invited to, to many um, webinars um, to talk on, um, on on business issues, leadership issues, entrepreneurship issues. Um, so, so I started to get busy, but it wasn't enough. I mean, I was making sandwiches, I was doing food parcels, I was packing food boxes, but it wasn't enough. I just felt that we needed to, we really needed to take this moment and take what was happening and document it because yes. um, it was it was incredibly special. I mean, I know for all of us, and we're still living in fear. There's still a lot of anxiety, but you know, the hope um, that 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 we um, came across through people that had lost everything. They had lost their businesses. Um, they weren't earning any revenue. They had they had no money. They had no money to put food on the table. Um, but what they had done to actually transform themselves and their businesses was was so remarkable that we needed to tell these stories of hope. Yes. Now, Don, what do you hope that uh, readers will benefit, uh, especially from uh, the book? So we we believe that the readers, I mean, across the board, you know, this is a little bit like um, the book, you know, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Um, there, there are 27 stories, and every story is very different. Um, you know, we've got a, a, a and, it, and it happened by accident. We've got a huge, um, diverse group of, of people, um, and they all ages, they're in various industries, various businesses, doing different things and um, we hope that we can spark some hope and you know give people some inspiration because you know dreams were shattered um, goals and plans for the year literally were thrown out the window and we hope that you know we'll give people will inspire people to put themselves up and say you know what in this story um, this person did XYZ and I can do the same so I think inspiration very much, and you know, for people just to to see that everyone everyone is going through exactly the same thing. Um, you know, no one's in a, in, in a different in a different boat. I mean, I always say that we're all in the same storm. We're all just in different boats. Some in speed boats, some in um, dilapidated old rowing boats, yes. and some in cruise liners. So we're all in the same boat, and. Um, we're all weathering and trying to navigate through the storm together. And it's just the power of togetherness and the power of, of hope. Um, because, you know, if, if, you, if you think about the fear that most people were going through, you know, what is the opposite of fear? The opposite of fear is hope. Um, and the inertia and 
just the feeling of um, of not being able to do anything over this time, I think really for us was our sense of you know standing up and saying we've, we've really got to take action um, and we've got to do something because there are incredible stories out there. We felt this whole wave and groundswell of negativity um, that was happening in you know in our communities to entrepreneurs and as you know entrepreneurs. Um, sometimes live month by month and, you know, they put all their money into their businesses and, and many of them had lost everything. So there's some really good stories with positive endings. There's some stories. There's a story for, 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 for basically everybody. Um, we've got some incredible stories of people that turned their businesses into soup kitchens um, who, you know, went from running manufacturing plants to, to, to manufacturing PPE. And just so many incredible things that people were doing. Um, and, you know, the people who chose triumph over adversity, who decided not to be the victim and rather to be victorious. Um, but the common thing that we found, that no one was doing this to make a lot of money. People were doing this to, to survive. And I think that was, that was a huge lesson for all of us, um, that there was just so much passion um, to stay alive um, and, and to survive. Yes. Now, uh, before I let you go uh, there, Don, uh, let's talk about the book sales. We understand uh, that uh, some of the proceeds will uh, go to some charities. Yes, it will indeed. So we have um, we have some incredible people that were business people, restaurant owners that turned their businesses into soup kitchens. Um, so there's, there's two incredible charities within our book. One is... Um, Angel Network, um, who, do, who are doing an incredible job in feeding, um, feeding schemes and community who are providing um, like incredible services for sport and providing clothes and blankets and um, you know everything that that is, is needed in communities. They're doing that and Ladles of Love, yes. um, who have made tons and tons and tons um, of, of sandwiches and meals and, and soup and, and just provided so much to community. So those are the two major charities. But every single person in our book, we've told them that 10% um, of the book sales will go to a charity of their choice. So we do have at the moment, we have about 15 or 16 different charities. So the proceeds of this will, will, will go to charities. For us, it was never about, about making money. It was more about sharing these stories of hope. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, Donna, for joining us uh, this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. It's a great pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. And I hope that we can all go out and um, and look for that little golden thread and that sparkle of hope somewhere in our lives. And that's uh, Don Nathan Jones, who is an entrepreneur, talking to us on the line. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs.
Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. As South Africa celebrates Women's Month this August, the issue of emancipation and empowerment of women has taken center stage. The number of women in the transport and logistic industry remains low with less of them in management positions as the industry is typically described as non-traditional employment pathway for women. Women are predominantly employed in support functions in areas of finance, information technology, communications, human resources, business development, procurement, quality and risk management. Founder and Managing Director of Go Girl Logistics, Sipoga Azimacha, says there's been several market developments creating viable opportunities to include women in the sector. I think that there is a move um, to talk because if we, like our president mentioned when he, um, on Women's Day that they are planning to set aside 40% of uh, the public procurement to women-owned businesses in order to achieve the equality. So I believe then that there are initiatives that are um, taking place and that I think we will see more of those initiatives taking place in order for more and more women to actually break into the industry, not just in logistics industry, but for women in general to break into business. Uh, tell us about some of the challenges that you face as a woman in this uh, logistics um, industry. I think the first problem is not the, is not only being a woman, it's actually just starting a business and also um, being a, you know, a startup company. The challenge is that you get to, to break into the industry, probably, you know, funding, first of all, because you have an idea in place that you want to start um, the logistics business, but you don't have funds in place. Then the second challenge, um, which is really, very common, is experience. You know, when you submit a document or a, you know, t- applying for um, a tender, there are so many certain requirements, like the fact that you have to meet like certain years of experience, you know, to score a certain point. So really, those are really setting us back as uh, women and business owners, because now where are you supposed to get experience? Because like in my case, we find that you've been in the industry, in logistics for like 15 years, working under uh, under a company, but now you want to break out of the company to start your own business, even though you have those many years of experience that you've done, but your company, Google Logistics, doesn't have 15 years then it becomes difficult for you to actually enter into the industry. And then the third problem that we face is, you know, it's very difficult to get into corporate, quite difficult for us to get into the, 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 the to work with the private companies or, you know, corporate industry because of the fact that we apparently lack experience and we do not have the technology in place. So all of those things, they become a challenge. Then we talk about the fact that you are now a woman and you know there's this thing about us women being uh, regarded as just paper pushers or being in support functions in, in, the, in the industry so um then it becomes even a greater challenge because more women are just regarded as to be well traditionally women were meant to just be people who sit at home and look after the children and now we are trying to come out to say that we are more than just uh, mothers we are more than just wives we can actually do even more 
So, but now we know that uh, stigma of a woman just being um, traditionally regarded as just a a mother, then how then do we break into the industry? You know, so those are the challenges that I, I believe are out there. And then there's also the gender-based violence that we women is experience, uh, have been experiencing. So how do you become a CEO in the company when you are also being abused at home? Because that will probably affect your productivity and your, you know, your mental state of mind. So really being a woman is quite challenging. And, and tell us about the Go Girl Logistics. What do you do? Um, in which um, areas do you um, operate in? And what have been the challenges since the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the lockdowns? How have you um, managed to stay afloat during this difficult time? Okay, well, about our business, Google Logistics, we are a 100% female, female-owned business. And as our name suggests, we are advocates of empowering women in the workplace, which is why our hiring strategy is mainly focused on ensuring the growth and sustainability of a successful company. And when we say that we are a female company, we mean that because all our drivers who are running our, our operation are extremely female, and we intend to hire women exclusively because of the same belief that women we hire work hard to provide the services for which we have built a, a positive track uh, record. So our company, we've got three divisions in our business. We've got the cold chain logistics, we've got the courier services, as well as we are also medical waste transporters. Yeah, from our cold chain logistics, we support the pharmaceutical industry, the food and beverage industry, as well as the healthcare industry. By that, I mean that we, we provide cost-effective, expedited and safe transportation of uh, medical specimen. We also transport documentation and high, I mean highly sensitive documents actually, as well as medical equipment. We support the food industry as well because we do the transportation of um, the storage and transportation of, uh, of food. Um, so we actually um, store the food and then we distribute the refrigerated goods as well as frozen food on behalf of our customers. And we believe this is important because the quality of frozen food can be jeopardized by failure to maintain um, the temperature of the goods from the point of um, storage to the point of distribution. That's uh, Sipogazi Macha, founder and managing director of uh, Go Girl Logistics. On the line, they're talking to Tutongo. And it's now time for us to cross over to the economics news. Tracy Pumgaard is here. Thank you, Teddy. A Somali court has sentenced four senior government officials to jail for aiding in the theft of public funds meant for COVID-19 emergency response. The Banadir Regional Court found the four guilty in a case that has drawn public scrutiny in the use of the funds in the country. The case arose in April, a month after the Horn of Africa nation reported its first COVID-19 case. Sarah Kimani reports. 
Though court documents did not indicate how much was stolen, the health ministry in April said it was investigating the misuse of between 42,000 and 45,000 US dollars. Somalia is the third African country to raise concerns over the theft of COVID-19 funds. The others include Kenya and South Africa. In Kenya, protesters took to the streets of Nakuru and Kisumu towns in the west of the country, demanding the arrest of those implicated in the theft of close to 430 million US dollars, money meant for buying COVID-19 provisions. Doctors in at least four counties in the country have gone on strike to demand better working conditions. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Employees of government banks in Khartoum, Sudan, will begin a two-day strike on Tuesday in an effort to draw attention to the necessity of reforming the banking system. Staff at the country's family bank had already embarked on strike action from Sunday. There have been calls for an investigation into corruption and stolen money while holding those responsible to account. A sit-in in Abu Dubai town has lasted almost one month. They are demanding the provision of better basic services. Nigeria's gross domestic product growth rate contracted in the second quarter of 2020, according to the National Bureau of Statistics. The decline was due to contraction in domestic and international economic activity during April to June, after countries globally shut down their economies following the outbreak of COVID-19. The decline ends a three-year trend of low but positive real growth rates recorded since the last recession in 2016. The Department of Public Enterprises says it has received more unsolicited interest from private sector funders, private equity investors and partners for South African Airways. The department says they have received more than 10 unsolicited declarations of interest for SAA and its subsidiaries, including Airshifts, South African Airways Technical and Mango Airlines. The DPE welcomes the mix of local and international investor groups for the airline. Naledi Ngobo reports. The department has once again pointed out that the voluntary retrenchments will see the retrenchment of all employees, with only a 1,000 employees remaining to start the new airline. It notes that a further 1,000 employees will be placed on a temporary training layoff scheme so that they can be absorbed into the new airline as and when new positions become available. It says it envisions the new airline to operate an efficient and modern aircraft fleet with a network structure that allows for connectivity at high. Weekly flights between Mozambique and Lisbon will begin on Tuesday in the hope that it will open up markets in India, China and Brazil. This is a partnership between Mozambique Airlines and Portugal's Half-Fly. The airline says it's aiming to control costs to offer a competitive tariff. The U.S. dollar is trading at 384.65 Nigerian Naira, 11.49 Botswana Pula, 106.86 Kenyan Shilling and 19.07 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollar is trading at 5.60 Brazilian Hale, 74.53 Russian Ruble, 74.24 Indian Rupee, 6.91 Chinese Yuan, and at 17 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,949 and platinum at $926 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $44.78 a barrel. Channel Africa would like to distance itself from fake social media accounts using the name Channel Africa News. The Facebook, WhatsApp and fake website have been impersonating our genuine Channel Africa digital platforms. Channel Africa is not associated with these fake accounts in any way whatsoever, and we are doing our best to make sure that they are shut down. Channel Africa's Facebook account is Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that uh, brings us uh, to the wrap-up of uh, Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Teddy Sibia, producer Luanda Mawume, technical producer Sfiso Mashiho, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on today's show, please do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. You can also send us a tweet at Channel Africa one Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Easy to Love by Boosie featuring Heavy K.